0: Today we are in our last passage in James. I had a little difficulty um, dividing up this the sections that I preached through, especially in this last part, uh, because uh, we're going to uh, add verse 12 to our section for today, which is the last verses, uh, 13 to 20. Um, it didn't really, it kind of, it's interesting how James writes. It's almost like he gets a sudden thought, and it's, it is connected in ways, and in other ways it just seems like it's, oops, I'm sorry, inserted. <laughs> that got your attention, right? <laughs> it's inserted in there, and this first portion, uh, verse 12, is, is like all on its own, but it's, it's important. And it, like other passages in James, it does come right out of Jesus' own teaching in the Gospels. In honor of God's word would you stand with me as I read the passage James chapter 5 verse 12 to 20 But above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation Is anyone among you suffering let him pray Is anyone cheerful let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So again, that first verse that's kind of set apart from the rest of the passage. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation you know in in our culture we might not exactly understand what's why did he have to say that but uh, i'll I'll explain there was some cultural things going on at the time and again this is james taking up an expression of jesus uh, reminding us to be honest and forthright in our speech with others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, and this is in uh, Matthew five, thirty three to thirty seven, again you have heard that it was said of, of to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, he's saying the judge is standing at the door. So be honest. Give no one the opportunity to criticize our faith because you've given in to some temptation to be deceptive for your own personal gain, whether it's financial or, or just seeking the favor of men. In those days, uh, people made agreements by coming together into the city gate and they would have judges there or witnesses that would listen to the oath or agreement that's made between uh, two different people. And, and the wording that they used could be really clever and deceptive. It would sound one way, but if you really examined the words, there was loopholes inserted that you could take in a different way. The same tactic has been used by unethical salesmen ever since, I think. The heart of man is the same throughout time. And James is telling us that you might get away with that in this life, but the Christian is going to find himself uh, under condemnation, knowing that he's been deceptive. The accuser of the brother is going to condemn you. Your testimony is going to be harmed. You've been a poor witness regarding our Savior. And it gives people the opportunity to criticize Christ. You know, one of the Biggest hindrances, I think, are one of the most common expressions I hear from those who don't want to don't want to have anything to do with church is oh, those people, that's a bunch of hypocrites there. God help us be the witness that speak truthfully with love and grace and mercy that we have received. Our society is divided over what truth is. One side says it's subjective. That there really are no absolute truths, which really is a self contradictory statement because if there's no absolute truths, how can that be true? (laughs) We stand on the Word of God, however, because we see it as the unchanging Word of God, the unchanging truth. It's always wrong to violate God's moral laws. It's always wrong to deceive others and manipulate others with words for personal gain or to take advantage of them. It's always right to love God and our fellow man. There's one God and creator of all things visible and invisible. The Bible is the word of God. We owe everything to God's goodness, mercy, and love. And Jesus is the only one who has made a way for us to be forgiven. He lived a perfect life, he conquered death and hell, he rose from the grave, and he's coming back as judge. That is the truth. And that's the truth we stand on. And it's not subjective, it's for every culture and all time. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing, song, sing praise. You know, suffering is a part of life in this fallen world, and we're, none of us is immune to it. It's never welcome, but it is often necessary. We might suffer from our own mistakes or from the sins of others, or just the consequences of living in this fallen world. But whatever the case, if you are in Christ, suffering is a time to draw near to God in prayer. This is contrary to the way the world would respond, you know, with complaints or bitterness or, and blaming God. And we delved into the importance of suffering about two weeks ago in the previous passage. But I'll just summarize it by saying that God always uses our suffering for our good. It's a time that we're drawn near to God and we find that we experience his presence more during those difficult times. And usually it's a time when we grow the most spiritually. Are you cheerful? The the world tends to forget God when everything is going well. And It can happen to us as believers as well. Everything's going smooth. We have no problems. We're not as desperate to seek God's face. But the believer, when he is cheerful, is to sing praises to God. We're to remember that all that goodness came from God and praise him for it. Songs are, I think, one of the the richest expressions of joy because Jesus is the reason for our joy. He's the one who made us right with the Father. And without that, how can anyone be truly joyful? But knowing our future is secure, that we won't be condemned when we're judged, but we'll go into his loving presence where every tear will be wiped away. Well, it doesn't get much better than that. So sing praise, James says. Sing it. Listen to praise music. He is worthy of all our praise. You know, music, there's something unique about music um, that we don't fully understand. Um, When I would go to Alzheimer's unit and do a little worship service for them, they would take their hymnal and it would be upside down and they would sing every word of every verse. They didn't know their spouse, they didn't know their kids, but the song was deep in their heart. Music is a gift from God. And when we use it for praise, for worship, it's just got this extra special power. You, you know the, of the, this account of King Saul, when an evil spirit came upon him, he'd have David come sing the praise and that spirit would lift from him. Praise is powerful. It lifts our spirit. And and if you feel you're under spiritual attack, remember that songs uh, have this power. You know, and I think partly it's because demons hate praise because it reminds them that they're on the losing team. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James gives us the instruction as to what to do as members of Christ's body when we become ill. We're instructed to ask the elders of the local church for prayer. Now, it's up to the one who is sick to express faith by asking the elders to pray for them according to this passage. Elders uh, maybe could suggest that someone ask for the elders to pray for them. But it's ultimately up to that person to request it. The second thing that's required of the sick person is in verse 16. There should be a confession of sin. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you confess it to the elders, but that you confess it to God. Um I believe James is is speaking of the time when our our conviction is that our affliction is related to some sin, which isn't always the case. Um, Jesus made it clear that not all sin is because of, uh, not all illness is because of a sin. And I don't think it's necessary to just try to dig up something. If you don't have, you'll usually know when there's something the Holy Spirit's letting you know this is because of something God's dealing with you Um, to the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda though however Jesus told him son your sins are forgiven go and sin no more and in another case uh, Jesus told the person, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So when there is that sense of conviction, we need to repent and know that God will forgive us and heal us. God longs to pour out his grace on our lives. But if sin stands in the way, he will graciously afflict us to open the way for his grace to be received. Of course, the call for the elders to pray for oneself should be at the leading of the Holy Spirit. Just because you caught a cold that's going around doesn't mean you need to call for the elders of the church or even just a bug that's passing through and you know you're going to get over it. Nor is it something just to try to see if it works. Well, let me just, maybe this really will work. No, it has to be the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God's leading you to call The elders for prayer. The instruction to the elders is that they are to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And you'll notice that this is plural. Let them pray over you. Often churches think, well, if the pastor prays for me, pastor special you know no it's plural them anointing with oil is symbolic in several ways oil represents the holy spirit setting them apart for god to minister to that person by his spirit it was used in the old testament to anoint priests and kings for their task and while this is not a commissioning so to speak it symbolizes that they belong to god and that they are in his care and oil was also used medicinally so why don't we see this more often i mean this is a very clear instruction right if anyone's sick call for the elders let them pray over the... why doesn't happen more often should we ignore the instruction of scripture or presume that we have a better way do we we believe god's word and stand on its promises One problem in the church is that so many churches ignore the design laid out in scripture for the oversight of the church. The apostles appointed elders in every town so that they might pray and work together to oversee the church. Paul's instruction to Titus was to appoint elders, plural, in every town, (singular). At the time, every gathering of believers in a town was considered to be that town's church. And the qualifications for those elders was given through the apostle Paul to Titus and to Timothy as to how to select those men. Many churches today instead have, uh, uh, have adopted this uh, CEO mentality or, or even worse, more of a, a kingship style It's difficult to find men who meet the standards of scripture to truly have a team of elders that meet those scriptural requirements. But that doesn't mean we should ignore God's design and seek a worldly design. If there are genuine elders, the church body should feel comfortable coming to them and asking them for prayer. Over the years here at Wayside, the elders have have done this numerous times, and we don't always see miraculous healing, but there are times when we do. We don't order God to act, He orders us. And this passage is His order. So we obey and we make the request with the authority that Jesus gives us, which is what in the name of the Lord means and we leave the rest to God. He may choose to heal or not to. The healing may come later. I can tell you of one case in which a person with macular degeneration was told that they were about to go blind. We follow the instructions given in this passage and the next visit to their ophthalmologist was met with surprise. He said, I don't know what happened, but your macular degeneration is gone. Praise God. We act according to the word of God and we leave the results up to God and his timing. Verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's the prayer of faith that takes God at his word and acts in obedience to the instruction that saves the sick. The Lord will raise him or her up. Now the declaration is unequivocal. However, much of the time we don't see immediate healing. The same was true at times in the New Testament. Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus. That's 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul's assistant and the church planter, Epaphroditus, almost died, Philippians 2.27. And Paul prayed three times for his own own healing and was told God's grace would be sufficient for him to live with that thorn in his flesh, 2 Corinthians 12.7-10. Now, in some charismatic churches, the lack of healing is ascribed to a lack of faith either in the one who's prayed for or in those who are praying. We should note that in this instruction, it's the men, again, plural, who pray, the prayer of faith. That would mean then that none of those men had faith and that the great apostle Paul did not have faith if that was the case. We just forget that God is sovereign. If our faith is in almighty God, we can trust him to do what is best. What if the person had more to learn from their illness? After all, David wrote in the Psalms, it's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Would we deny the person that gift? What if God has numbered their days and it's time for them to come home? Would we make them linger in this sin sick world? if there is a spirit given conviction that the person will be healed and even sometimes when we're not certain, God will heal. If we ask anything according to his will, scripture says he hears us. We should not forget that. Therefore, we have to ask if it's God's will at that particular time for the individual to be healed. And if the prayer is prompted by the spirit the Spirit will respond and you will see God's will done, whether immediately or at a later time. But that's the lesser miracle to what follows. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And that's the greatest miracle. If the illness was caused by sin and there's confession, healing will confirm the forgiveness of God. Verse 16a, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James is describing a a church that is a loving spiritual family that cares for one another. If we're holding ourselves accountable to others by, by sharing our prayer needs, confessing where we failed and need encouragement, the need to go to the elders will be a rarity. Instead, we will all be ministering to one another in openness and seeking to build one another up as we pray for one another. Public confession of sin is humbling, but it encourages others to do the same, asking for prayer from the congregation. It shouldn't deal with specifics. We don't, We don't want to get into all the details, the gory details. We don't need to know that, but rather a request for prayer of a general nature, such as I am struggling with a temptation. Would you please pray for me? Real, deep, genuine confession of sin has been a feature of every genuine awakening or revival in the past 250 years. It just, it's almost as if it just suddenly breaks out. Someone comes up and just pours out their heart and says what, what's happening in their life, asks for forgiveness and prayer, and then someone else does, and then someone else does. And before you know it, you have a situation like we saw in Asbury. That's what happened there as well. But it isn't anything new as demonstrated by the revival in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, 17 to 20. It says, many who believed came confessing, telling their deeds. This was Christians getting right with God, and open confession was a part of it. Today, we're often too fearful that someone might find out our shortcomings. what is the root of that fear but pride should we keep the confidence of those who confide in us absolutely but if somehow others find out should we be humiliated hallelujah yes remember james said humble yourselves in the sight of the lord and he will exalt you did james didn't james tell us that If fear of being found to be a sinner keeps you from confessing your faults, you have the greater problem of pride. If you're afraid your sin will be found out, you've thought too highly of the congregation because we are all sinners saved by grace. Sadly, we see some sins as more heinous than others, but all sin is an affront to God. It's playing God. It's defying him. And sadly, we catch ourselves doing that too often. That's why we need to confess to one another and to pray for one another. Not only will the person you confess to help you by holding you accountable and praying for you, but they will encourage you in your walk. And this passage goes on to tell how powerful the prayer of a righteous person is. But in case you haven't taken that great a stock in prayer, and and the sign of that is our lack of prayer. If you you don't have great faith in prayer, you're not going to pray often. But let me encourage you by telling you what the Bible says prayer can do. It can save you and your family from the wrath of God, and it can bless a thousand generations of your descendants. It can cause the barren to conceive even if the man is 100 years old and the woman is 90. It can inform you of God's calling on your life. Prayer can stop time in its tracks as it did for Joshua. It can heal the sick. It can raise the dead. It can call fire from heaven and consume our enemies or consume a sacrifice along with the stones and the water. It can open the eyes of the spiritual realm. It can bring a drought to cause a nation to repent. It can fill a temple with the spirit so thick that you couldn't enter. It can stop the mouth of hungry lions. It can bring us a revelation of what is to come. It can act ask and receive forgiveness of sins, it can usher in the baptism of the Spirit into a believer's life, it can bring revival to a wayward nation. Yes, even as wayward as this one. And all this and more is to say that prayer can bring God's world word, word and life into this earthly realm. The only limit to what prayer can do is the sovereign will of God. And if you are God's child, you don't want to pray against the sovereign will of God. That's exactly what you do want to pray. When the scripture says we are to pray for one another, we should believe God will do great things when we pray. The Apostle Paul said God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or even think last half of verse 16 the prayer of a righteous person has great power when it is working you know sometimes i hear the excuse i'm not a righteous person so i'm asking you to pray because your prayers have great power well i am no more righteous than you are our righteousness is from god amen when we repented of our sin we received the righteousness merited by christ We cannot be more righteous in God's eyes than we already are. If you are knowingly compromising with sin in your life, now that's another matter. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 7 that husbands need to live with their wives in understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers are not hindered. In other words, Treat your wife like Jesus treats us if you want your prayers to be unhindered. So if you don't have anything that hinders your prayers due to knowing disobedience, your prayers are just as powerful as Elijah's prayers that we read, we'll read about in the next verse. The glory of God is seen in his ability to work through poor instruments like you and me. Saying you're too poor an instrument to be used of God is to doubt God and his ability. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Notice that James says Elijah's nature was just like ours. During the days of Elijah, the northern tribes were under the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who was even more evil than he was. Elijah prayed that God would withhold from them the blessing of rain to cause the northern tribes to repent. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. When the king was desperately searching for some water, uh, finding, looking for springs to, for grass for his animals, God sent Elijah to meet him. And Elijah demanded a confrontation with the prophets of Baal, 400 of them on the top of Mount Carmel. They brought two bulls for a sacrifice and Elijah told the prophets of Baal build your altar and call on your God to consume the sacrifice Baal is the God of thunder and rain and and so hey he's the one who's being withholding the rain so you, you just go and ask him to send that send down that fire from heaven and bring the rain they danced around the altar according to their custom and even started offering their blood as a sacrifice as they cut themselves and Elijah mocked them, saying, hey, maybe your God's gone to the bathroom. Cry a little louder. He told them, just yell a little more. And then when they finally wore themselves out, it was Elijah's turn. He rebuilt the altar to Jehovah that had been torn down the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He laid the bull on, the, on those 12 stones. He had the people douse it with water three times until a trench around the altar was filled with water. And then he asked God to show the people who God really is. And fire came down and consumed the sacrifice and the stones and the water. And the people cried out, El The Lord is God. That's Elijah's name. Elah, the Lord is God. Then Elijah prayed for rain. I think it's fascinating that he had to pray seven times. And he tells Ahab to hurry because the rain's going to stop you. And he bows again, he bows again the seventh time, a little cloud like this just like the size of a little fist rose on the horizon. And soon the skies were black and the rain drenched the land. I think that James added that the earth bore its fruit because he wanted the readers to realize that prayer is what brings fruit out of barrenness. No matter the problem, prayer can turn what is dry and empty into what is fruitful and good. In the last two verses, 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This letter ends in a strange way. You know, most of the epistles end with a, a final greeting to the people the letter's going to. But I think what James is doing here is telling us, telling those churches and all who would read the letter to James, that he sees the church, that he sees people wandering. That means to slowly go off in the wrong direction. Like sheep, you know, that would get lost. They see something over there and they, go away from the flock just a little more and then a little more until they're gone he says if you see someone like that someone backsliding bring them back and the way to bring them back is to hear from God to know what they need to hear it's God who brings them back we're we're just those flawed instruments that God uses so graciously But what a joy to know that God works through even us to bring his will into their life. If if someone was about to jump off a cliff, we try our best to talk them out of it. Jumping into a life of sin is worth. It's worse, excuse me. It's an eternal death. We should feel a great sense of urgency to be used by God to draw them back from the edge. So we plead with God for wisdom, knowing that James said that God's more than willing to give us generously that wisdom we ask for. I find it's the word of God that usually is the tool that God gives us to bring them back. Often he gives us a scripture to share with them. They've either either forgotten the word or chosen to ignore it. But when we remind them of the greatness of God's love for them, as declared in scripture, the seduction of the enemy loses its appeal. Perhaps James abruptly ended his letter this way because it was the very theme of the entire letter. He saw those churches wandering from the truth and wrote this letter to turn them back. May the Lord use it in our lives to keep us in fellowship and always straining forward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.